0: Recently, a friend of mine told me uh, a story. He worked at a very large, successful uh, mega church in a different city. If I said the name of the church or the pastor, there's a good chance you would be familiar with their ministry. As far as i know it's a great ministry they 've been around for a long time and have you know um, accumulated a lot of uh, resources and um, you know, i don 't know anything negative about them, but they're uh, they 're in a very wealthy city and a very wealthy part of time and, and um, their their church isn't short on funds, so he uh, told me this uh, story where at Christmas time um, they have a staff Christmas party, and they do something I've never heard of, and which we couldn't do here is uh, everyone comes and they do white elephant, but instead of you bringing the gift and playing the game, um, the pastor in the church provides all the gifts for the staff as kind of a bonus at the end of the year, and that's how they do it. And so it's kind of fun. You get to go to this Christmas party, and you never know what kind of gift you're going to get, and they play this game. And so my, my buddy was on staff at this church. So he tells me the story, and and he had a one of his um, like student pastors that was on staff with him was about to quit. He didn't like it wasn't a good fit. There was some conflict. He was tired, ready to move on. He was about to quit, but he um, wanted to wait until this Christmas party. Right? <laughs> so they go, and um, you know about halfway through the party, it's his number. He goes and he opens up this gift, and in it is an envelope, and inside the envelope is two tickets to Hawaii with a paid vacation, and he's like, I'm glad I haven't quit yet, (laughs) you know, (laughs) of course it's white elephant, the next person who gets up is like, I'll take that, right, and then, you know, eventually after the second time that gets stolen, the gift is frozen, no one can take it, so he's On this roller coaster of I just had I don't want to be at this party Oh I got a Hawaii vacation and then he's got to go and pick another gift and so he sees this big box so he goes and gets the big box he opens it up it's like a three foot stuffed puppy dog he's pretty ticked so he gets this puppy dog out of the box and he goes over to his seat and he like kind of you know not forcefully but kind of passive aggressive slams it down it's got these big long floppy ears that like flap up and he's pretty upset my friend was sitting like next to him. And when one of the ears flipped up, he saw that safety pin on the backside of the ear was a wad of cash that no one else saw and that this guy didn't see. So he divides his plan. When it comes to his number, he's going to do his friend a solid by stealing the gift that he doesn't want, <laughs> let him go again. He'll earn favor with everybody and get brownie points with his friend. But what he really knows is that there's cash underneath this thing. And so his turn comes. He takes the puppy dog Everyone's like, how could you do that? Oh my God. And he, come, he, sits, he, doesn't open, he just sits there and puts his arm around it. And like no one takes, I think it's like 500 bucks with safety pin on the back of this dog's floppy ear, right? So this is kind of how the staff party worked out. So this guy who does not want to be on staff anymore goes up for his third pick and he gets his present. And inside of it is the pastor's new book that had just released and that's the gift. And he's like, I've gone from Hawaii to your book. Like, what a gift, right? So he takes the book, sits down, and surprisingly, there were no brown nosers in the staff. No one stole the pastor's book, which might have been a good strategy to get a raise. But he, the party ends, and he leaves with the pastor's new book as his gift. And he's pretty, like, fuming inside. Goes to his office, puts it on the shelf, doesn't open it, doesn't read it. You know, after the new year comes around, the pastor approaches the staff member and says, Hey! how'd you like my new book? Student pastor hadn't read it. Makes up something. Oh, it was great. You know, it was your best work ever. And that was it. A couple weeks later go by, the pastor comes up and he says, hey, what was your favorite thing in the book? He makes up something, you know. A couple weeks go by, and the pastor again says, hey, what was the most surprising thing in my book that I gave you? You know, he makes something up. and A couple months go by, I think it's like May, and he resigns and he going to transition out over the summer. And um, he's packing up his office, and just, there's been so much bitterness and resentment that has built up in this guy's heart over years. And he's finally out. He's cleaning his office, doesn't want to be there anymore. And he, he gets to this book, and he remembers the Christmas party and is just ticked off that he didn't have that Hawaii vacation that he really could have used, and instead he got the pastor's book. And in anger, not his best moment, he takes the book, and he throws it against his office wall. It hits the wall and comes down. But as it's falling down, the book opens up and $2,000 in cash flies out everywhere in his office. Then he realized why the pastor three times asked him, how'd you like the book I gave you? He had this incredible gift, a life-changing. You know you could do with $2,000 unexpectedly. He had this life-changing gift of cash sitting on his shelf. Wonderful, gracious gift that was given to him. You never opened it. And the Sabbath is like that. The Sabbath is this incredible, delightful, holy, life-changing gift. And when we get it, like in the fourth commandment, you know, thou shalt keep the Sabbath day holy, and it's the longest commandment out of all ten, we tend to do what this student pastor did, as we take that and we begrudgingly put it on the shelf, but never touch it. But if we did, I wonder how our lives would change and how much delight and holiness and pleasure and restorative power might we receive from God if we actually engaged the gift. So uh, please turn with me to Genesis chapter one. We're actually gonna uh, be in chapter two. Go to page two if you use one of these Bibles. We're gonna read the last verse of Genesis. Genesis 1, and then a few verses of chapter two. Don't worry, if I ever give you a book, there will not be $2,000 in cash inside of it. I wish. But if you give me a book, I will look. All right, let's read uh, Genesis 1, verse 31, and then we'll move on to the next um, chapter. And God saw everything that he had made, And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the Jewish way of seeing the day. The sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were, what's that uh, next word? Finished. So on the sixth day, he saw everything he had made. It was very good, it was perfect. It's the sixth day. Evening and morning, the end of the sixth day, the heavens and the earth were, the scripture says, finished and all the hosts in them. And then verse two. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Now, there's a really subtle secret in these verses that we just read that most Western evangelicals miss. And it's the secret that no Eastern Jew misses. Because if you read this very carefully, you see in in the creation account that God creates its good evening and morning. He creates its good evening and morning. There's this repetition. And then it gets to, to the sixth day, and he creates, and it's very good. It's when he created man and woman. And then evening and morning. The sixth day. And then it says he finished all his work in all creation. And and we we Western Americans tend to see this as God did all of his work in six days, and then on the seventh day, he did no work, and he (laughs) rested, which is really close to the truth, but misses it. But if you read verse 2 of chapter 2, it says, and on the seventh day, God finished his work. And so the ancient Jews asked the question, what did he finish doing? Because previously, and in an Exodus, it's the same, um, in the retelling of this, I think it's an Exodus, it's the same thing. Is that God finished creation in six days? But then at the beginning of the seventh day, it seems that he tidied up a bit and did something else. And so the Jews asked, what was the cherry on top? We might ask, what was the thing in the midst of a perfect creation? good, very good heavens and earth where sin hadn't yet entered? What was that thing that was missing that God needed to create and finish up for the world to be complete? And the ancient Jews theorize, and I believe they're correct, they say that the thing God finished on the seventh day was that he created rest. Which is really fascinating. We step back and think of it like that. The, um, we'll get into exactly what he created, but I want to show you quickly four things that we see God doing in this um, pa- passage. The first thing is that he finished his work. Uh, confession time. I love starting things. I don't like finishing things. The joy of starting things is great, but here we see God's a finisher he that began a good work, and you shall we'll also finish it, bring it to completion. He finished. The thing that he finished, the, the, the finishing work of the seventh day, is what the Jews called, the Hebrew word is, manuha. And it is the Hebrew word. It's not in this text specifically, but it's used throughout the scriptures. Um, and, uh, and all of Judaism and Hebrew believe and teach that this is the thing God created at the beginning of the seventh day. He created this thing called Manuha. It's the Hebrew word for rest. Now, we Westerners, we see rest very differently than the Easterners see rest. We see rest as an empty thing when somebody dies. Especially, we just came out of Halloween and you see RIP everywhere, rest in peace. And it's really a hollow rest. We're like, okay, there's this thing in the ground, but then it decays and there's a rest in peace. And we tend to see rest as vacancy, In music, I'm a musician. If you know music, especially if you can read music, you know that there's a rest in music, and it's when you don't do anything. It's literally nothing. Rest in music is nothing. The best music has lots of nothing in it. The worst music is just like over and over. Like Sometimes I hear a song like, you know, it'd be great if you put some rest in there. Like There's just too much coming at you. But even in music, we think of rest in terms of emptiness and, and even in terms of vacations. The word vacation comes from the root word vacate, which means empty. So when you take a vacation, you, or literally mean that you are emptying yourself of all work to go do a bunch of pleasure. And that's generally how we see rest um, in an in, in empty, hollow, uh, vacant manner. Uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, who's like the authority on um, looking at Sabbath from a Jewish perspective, he writes that to the biblical mind, menuha is the same thing as happiness and stillness. So the, the Jews looked at Menuhah, and when they say rest, they don't mean do nothing. They say rest by being still and finding like joy and happiness. In fact, uh, the second thing um. Actually, great little note here is we just read Psalms 23. The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Can you guess what the Hebrew word in Psalms 23 two for still waters is? It's manuha, right? Still waters in Psalms 23 is manuha. That he leads us beside waters that are still that bring refreshment. That's what it means by still waters. It's not. A vacant thing. The second thing we see God doing in Genesis 2 is that he rested. The Greek, or not the Greek, the Hebrew word here is shavath. And it means to cease, desist, and be still. So to Sabbath, to rest, in the Hebrew mind, does mean to like slow down, to stop. But it's a verb. You gotta, I mean, there's a doing to it. It's not simply you lay on the couch and veg for you know, 24 hours. That is not restoration. That's escaping. <laughs> that's not restoration. My, um, and then we got to point out that God did not rest because he was tired. Many times when we talk about Sabbath, people only put it into the category of the return on investment our physical bodies get because, you know, like by Friday, you are kind of tired and you are looking for Sabbath. And, and yeah, that's like totally legit, right? But obviously, if God is God by definition, he did not rest because he was exhausted. If he was exhausted, by definition, he would not be God. He would not be all-powerful. And so we have to first ask the question, well, why did God rest if he necessarily didn't need to? I mean, it's a holy thing to rest. My friend, uh, Chad Jarnigan, uh, recently wrote a book called Learning to Be, which uh, I'm reading through every morning right now. It's it's a wonderful thing. Uh, This morning, I read this. He said, the reality is that many of us may be conditioned to associate stillness with laziness and inactivity, and inactivity with failure. We are overscheduled, overworked, oversensitized, and some of us have come to believe that if at any point we aren't doing something that contributes to our income, we're not doing well. This is why it's so hard to talk to pastors about Sabbath and rest is because, you know, they... Uh, pastors tend to view our worth in seven-day cycles with how many people are here and how much money they gave and like it's very accomplishment-driven, which is not the heart of Jesus at all. But to slow down and to be still is very hard for not just ministers, but for everybody. Uh, the University of Virginia just did this hilarious study. They asked 700 people to sit alone, not, not all together, but one at a time, to sit alone in a room with only silence in their thoughts from anywhere between six minutes to 15 minutes. Not a very long time. And they put on the table in front of them a, uh, a button that if they wanted out of the room, they could hit this button, it would send them an electronic shock. And after being shocked, they could leave the room at any time. If the silence and stillness of six minutes or 15 minutes got uncomfortable, they could shock themselves and get out of it. 67% of men chose to shock themselves rather than sit quietly in stillness for six minutes. Women are way better. 25% of them shocked themselves. But I'm surprised anybody shocked themselves. Uh, Like, I think what this study can prove to us is, is there something inside of us, whether it's pure entertainment value of saying we did that or if it was legitimate pain, Most people don't want to sit in silence and stillness. You know why? Because if you actually were still for just a few minutes, you'd have to pay attention to the hard questions your soul wants to ask. And for most of us, Netflix and wine is way better than that. It's not, but we think it is. The third thing we see God doing in Genesis 2 verse 3 is that he blessed the Sabbath. This is... Really fascinating. The Hebrew word for blessed is barah, and it literally means to kneel. I don't even know what to do with that. It's, uh, the Hebrew word uh, barah is closely associated with the word for knee in the Hebrew. We think, I think of blessing as, um, hey, here's this great gift, and it's gonna be like nice, and it's you know probably like an ice cream donut, or it's, you know, here's this like really like, like um, positive, extra thing you don't really need, but it's a treat. And I tend to think of blessing as this overabundance thing. But here in Genesis 2, verse 3, when it says that God blessed the Sabbath, it literally means that the maker of the mountains kneeled before the Sabbath. What do you do with that? More, more, more so, why don't we bless the Sabbath, and the God of the Sabbath, and Jesus as our Sabbath, by kneeling before, there's, uh, it could also mean to salute or greet, really, uh, the imagery there is, I, I still don't even know what to do with it, I'm like, I'm shocked, like, that's not what I thought blessing meant, in this context, but we see God blessing the Sabbath, the fourth thing, and the last thing he does, is it says he made it holy, he consecrated it, the Hebrew there is kadash, it literally means to dedicate, to make holy, to set aside. When we prayed for the Chemnitz just now, we kadoshed them. We dedicated them. We blessed them. We, we set them apart. We made them holy. And this is what God does to the seventh day. He sets it apart. Here's kind of how I think of it. This is great. Because the rhythm of Genesis is that there's these seven days, and it's on the first day, and it was good. And on the second day, and it was good. And on the third day, right, it was good. Fourth day, it was good. Fifth day, it was good. Sixth day, it was good. And there's these like basically six containers, evening and morning, which is a container, a bookend, a bracket. And that there's these days, they're kind of all the same. But then the seventh day is set apart. The seventh day is different than all the other six days. It's holy. It's blessed. It's consecrated. God did not kadosh the other six days, He kadoshed the seventh day. It's not the same container. Now, on our calendars, we just put all seven days, like in my calendar, like Sunday or whatever your Sabbath day is. It doesn't necessarily matter the day of the week it is, it's just a 24 hour time. It's a container. My calendar doesn't, like, have a color of it. And our tendency is we just lump this container of time, the seventh day or the Sabbath day, whenever it is, with all the other six. And and if we're not careful, we treat this blessed time, this sacred, consecrated time, as just another man-made cup. But it's not. It's different. I'm a visual artist. Here's kind of how I think of it. Here's a, this is great. I think this is Brilliant. How many is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. All right. Some people live their lives like this: seven days leaning forward, getting stuff done. Right? What's the next slide? Then there's some who do that for six days, but they're like, I'm gonna take the Sabbath, but you're still standing proud. Then there's some, you do this, you work hard for six days, and then the seventh day you collapse is the introverts in her, right? Okay. I love introverts. Then there's a uh, next slide is oh maybe you do it for 5 days and then the weekend is like let me get out of let me go escape. And you don't know sabbath, you escape. And your posture looks more like this. And then um, then people who actually lean into this see that oh no, there's 6 days, but then the 7th this other day is different and it's where I actually relax. And I actually um, unplug a little bit from maybe I'm not on my phone. I, I don't check email on my Sabbath, I don't do social media on my Sabbath, I don't have my watch on my Sabbath. This is my way of like leaning back, refraining, getting away, unplugging. And um, Christians post resurrection would actually flip it, and this is really, I think, how you should do it is you should begin your week with Sabbath. You should begin in that posture, and out of the joy and restoration that you receive from opening the book that has this gift in it, then you lean forward for six days, and you do all of your paid and unpaid work of life. And then seven days later, you redo the cycle, you step back, and you Sabbath. Does that make sense? Now, here's, um, this is fascinating. The first thing, I'm gonna get a little... Um, Ethereal for a second. The first thing that God says is holy is time. I love mountains. I love beaches and water. I love people. The very first thing, chronologically speaking, that is set apart in a perfect world is the Sabbath day. Time. Sacred Time, there's a great book called Sacred Time by um, Robert Weber, amazing book, okay. Later, humans, um, because of the fall, they desecrate themselves or desacred themselves. And um, in Exodus 19, verse six, God commands that people be set apart and made holy. That's where he says, you're gonna be a holy nation, you're gonna be a royal priesthood. And we start to get this idea of needing to consecrate people and then later, after that goes still wrong, um, in number seven, God says, all right, now comes a time where I need to consecrate space. And talk talking about the tabernacle here. And He's like, okay, set up the space where your people can come in, the Holy of Holies, set that aside, my presence will come, and, and my presence will begin to make things right. And this, at least, if you're taking a, um, a you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy view of the world, Chronologically, this is the order in which God sanctifies things. Most of us live our lives in the, in the antithesis of this. We invert it. Um, aren't all advertisements aimed at getting you to spend money on space or the things that occupy space? We even in our language we say time is money. Don't waste time, but I'm going to use time to make money and maybe even use some people along the way so that I can buy something to fill a space, or I can go to a space and have fun. You know, now there's now we're conscious about even the coffee we buy. Was the coffee the thing we buy that occupies space? Was it made and bought in a way that's fair to the humans in between, which is a good. Thing. Um, I, Shari and I, our honeymoon, we went to Florida. So, like last, um, last Sunday, I was in Florida um, helping a friend. And uh, when I was in Destin on the beach, or not on the beach, we drove by. I didn't get to go to the beach. I was at a church the whole trip. It's awful. But <laughs> I drove by the beach. I was like, can we, can we go over there? But, like, just being in Florida, smelling salt water, and seeing palm trees, like, that space, I hollow the space of Florida different than the Riverwalk, mm-hmm. right? To me, Florida is more sacred than the Riverwalk of San Antonio, right? And we, and we get around people, and we, um, we, we might hollow pe- different people better. Like, I was at Chipotle one time, and David Robinson walked by me, and I didn't see him. But when I got inside, the whole place was a commotion because David Robinson had been in Chipotle on Broadway. I go there every week now. I still haven't seen him again, you know? But like when we meet, like, like if you're a basketball fan and you meet like Popovich or you like walk by Tim Duncan, like, like because you, you might place some value on that human, and that's all great everything, but the point is, have you ever considered that God does the same thing with the seventh day, that he sets this day for manuha, he sets this day for restoration, and he blessed it, he knelt before it, he set it apart and made it holy as an example. The fourth commandment, the longest commandment, instructs us to recognize this. It's right up there with don't murder, don't steal, don't cheat on your spouse. Now, here's the gospel in all of this. Jesus is our Sabbath. The kind of the the stickiness you get into when talking about Sabbath, because a lot of people don't know how to do it well, and they start asking, well, how do I do it? And it gets really murky because you're, you're, there's the very fine line between instructing people and the principles of Sabbath and then giving a re- religious law to do it. Um, but, but the reality is that Jesus is the Sabbath personified. Jesus is the Sabbath walking around in sandals. At the end of the day, if there is any power that comes from taking 24 hours and setting it aside, it is to take those 24 hours and set them aside to be with and engage with Jesus. Um, Eugene Peterson calls um, having a Sabbath without Jesus is a bastard Sabbath. It's the word he uses. He translated the Bible. Get mad at him, not me. But he says if you, if you have a Sabbath, but it's, it's not, it doesn't involve pulling back from the world and engaging with God and engaging with beauty and engaging with creation and feasting and maybe napping and not making your bed and these beautiful pleasures, that it's an illegitimate, it's a day off. But a day off is not the same thing as Sabbath. A day off is usually filled with more work we don't get paid for. In Matthew 11, Jesus gives us a clue. And and there's some instructions inside of this that I want to highlight. If you're weary, if if you're tired, physically or spiritually, if you're like, I don't even know how to kneel before the Sabbath, what does that look like? This is what Jesus says. First, he says, Come to him. And I, I say, Don't go to entertainment. Don't go to social media. Don't go to YouTube. Don't go to vacations. Don't go to, like, look, come to Jesus for rest. All who labor and are heavy laden. And here's the thing that took me a long time to get it's a gift. I would always approach the Sabbath like, okay, what do I need to do to relax? (laughs) You know, and I'm like, just a clue, you know, (laughs) like, I need help. And for me, the light bulb was, oh, no, 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 no. This thing that my soul, my body, and my mind, and my emotions longs for is a gracious gift. I just have to come to Jesus for it. And here's how we receive the gift, okay? Um, Because sometimes the gift is given to us, but we put it on the shelf like the book. And here's Jesus' words on how to take the book off the shelf. He says, take my yoke, which is an agricultural term. We won't get into it for the sake of time. But He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Now, here's the cliff notes. How you rest is you come to Jesus and you humble yourself. That's how you rest. A lot of us live under the tyranny of the burden of pride. If pride is a stronghold in your life, one of the outworkings of that might be that you are really concerned with what people think of you because you're prideful, you're self-centered, you're very conscious of how people are viewing you. And so everything you do and everything you say is done through the filter of how other people see yourself, which is very prideful. That's exhausting. If you if you've got the stronghold of pride in your life, you're probably tired because you think you've got to do it all, or you've got to check your email all the time, or you have to work 60 hours a week in order to get ahead, or, or like if you're exhausted, it's, you need to look for any ounce of pride that could be in your life, because the burden of pride is exhausting. And Jesus just simply says, come to me, humble yourself, learn from me, take my yoke, and when you take my yoke of humility, And you let Jesus be the strong ox, which is what yokes are for. You take a young ox who doesn't know how to plow the field, you yoke him to the strong ox, and the strong ox teaches the young ox how to do its job. And that's the invitation Jesus says, is come, yoke yourself to me, my way is easy, my burden is light. If your way is hard, and if your burden is heavy right now, Matthew 8, 11 is the gospel screaming at you, either physically or vocationally or relationally or spiritually or whatever, whatever realm or, or, um, or um, avenue you want to apply this in, Jesus is like, come to me, kneel before me, kneel before this practice, open the book, and just receive the gift that, that is for you. The question I'd like to just leave you with is, how is God inviting you to humble yourself, and to kneel before him. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is our Sabbath. And every time we do it, the results are amazing. And we don't always do it because we're tired. Often we do it because it's a holy thing to do. It's a godly thing to do. So Heavenly Father, we come today and we, um, we humble ourselves before you, Jesus. Would we recognize the the pride, the stubbornness, the distractions that may be in our life that keep us from experiencing rhythmically, whether that's every morning, noon, nighttime, every day, every week, through the weekly Sabbath or through monthly Sabbaths or through extended sabbaticals, but often, We come to you exhausted, not knowing the gift of still waters, not knowing the gift of Manuha. And we ask just for your help. We don't even ask for you to help us do some more. We just ask that you would come and lift the burdens. We ask for you to come and shine light where our thinking and our theology around this is all messed up. Lord, I pray if if any of us are here and we feel overwhelmed, I pray you'd bring the right people to come and to serve this work in our lives and help us maybe order our time to see where we've overcommitted. But I pray you'd give us the gift of brothers and sisters who love us enough to point out the blind spots of our pride. Or bring people to show us where pride is at work and where selfishness and stubbornness and workaholism and consumerism and escapism are all at work and we don't even know it because we're enslaved to it. Or we just invite you to bring those people right now into our lives and fill our week with those conversations. Lord, make us people of your rest. We ask this in your beautiful name. Amen.